everyone. Welcome to Real World Parenting, tips and scripts for parents on roads less traveled. I'm Dr. Laura Anderson, a child and family psychologist, and I'm glad you're here. As you settle in to listen, let me reassure you that you are in the right place. If you're a loving parent looking for answers and encouragement, and maybe even a chuckle amidst hard things. If you're a loving parent who's raising a child on a journey different from your own as a child, and are seeking a compass as you navigate uncharted waters. This is the place for you if you get the theory of parenting advice you keep hearing, but for the love of chocolate and curry and all other nearly perfect things, that theory never quite works as planned with your actual children. Finally, you are in exactly the right place if you're a therapist or clinician who works with kids, teens, and families. My intention is that these episodes will deepen your work and change lives. So in this intro, I get two to three minutes here to boil down 30 years of work in my psychology offices and my experience as a mom in the trenches and let you know what I'll offer with this podcast. I almost called it Lessons from Our Living Rooms or Couch Conversations because my offerings will be things I have learned and keep learning from the vantage point of both my living room couch and my therapy office couch. The aim of this podcast is to offer hope, support, wisdom, and experience in community, to provide clinicians a window into what our recommendations actually mean for real families in real life. We will talk all things kid and teen related and shine a spotlight on families navigating identities related to race, gender, and adoption. We will explore common child and adolescent mental health and wellness related topics. The hope is to leave you with a greater understanding of your child's needs and a, you got this, energy. Episodes will also feature actual practical tips and answers to questions including, well, what do I say when? And well, what do I do when? So that you feel equipped to handle the day-to-day parenting puzzles we face. So pour yourself a cuppa or lace up some shoes or hide in your busy parent bathroom for a bit and join me for head and heart conversations about loving and living with children walking past less often traveled. Have I mentioned I'm glad you're here? I trust that you'll be glad. Thanks everybody for joining me today. Um, I am really glad you're here and I know you will be too by the end of this this session um, and this this honor that we're about to have to get and sit with Susan Um, who was not only just really important in my own learning journey about adoption and the adoption triad, uh, but has also been able to touch many, many lives in this work in the field of adoption. And so welcome, Susan. I'm thrilled personally and professionally to be able to sit with you um, and take this chance just to, to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you end up in the, in the chair with me today. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. I'm glad to be here too. And thanks for the invitation. Yeah. My name is Susan Dusha Geta-Alexander. Um, how I ended up in this chair is a long story that starts with, um, my own, um, journey as a transracial adoptee. Um, I was transracially adopted as an infant, domestic infant adoption in the U.S. Um, I am a mixed race, Latinx, Native American, um, Polish, a little bit of Scottish. Um, and I was raised in a Polish-American white family um, in the Chicago suburbs. 
Um, I was placed for adoption uh, in a closed adoption in 1980 um, and reopened or opened it um, as a teenager um, when I was about 17 years old um, and have been navigating the complexities of open adoption with all of my first family members since then. Um, when I was 20, I had an unplanned pregnancy and ended up placing my daughter, my first child for adoption. So I'm also a first mother. And I will share a little bit more about that after I'm done with my intro. <laughs> um, and, you know, having these two personal um, connections with adoption, when I decided to become a licensed marriage and family therapist, um, I initially did not want to focus on adoption. I didn't want to be like, I don't know, too much in my own stuff or pigeonhole myself like, oh, because I've had these experiences, this is how I want to practice. But I ended up finding that, you know, professionally, I was just really drawn to working in the adoption foster care space. Um, and so um, have uh, kind of ended up, uh, my current position is I'm the agency and clinical director at PACT, an adoption alliance whose mission is to serve adopted BIPOC youth and their families. And so I have a couple different roles there, work with um, basically all members of the triad in all sorts of ways and can explain more about that in a bit too. Um, so yeah, just personal, you know, lots of connections with adoption. Um, and then that's sort of become my professional focus too as a therapist. Yeah, in a complicated and beautiful and, and hard and unique fashion, um, able to really sit with the complexity of this. And I think one of the main, you know, things when I think about, you know, goals, as I notice working um, with families, um, there's so many myths, right? Like when we, mm -hmm. when we connected around this, I'm like, basically, I want to be able to just share what I've been lucky to learn from folks about sort of combating the myths of adoption as a win-win-win, right? It's a win for a kid who gets a family, a family gets a kid, and a birth parent mm -hmm. feels good, or the first mm -hmm. parent feels good about, you know, making this decision and, and everybody, you know, moves on grateful um, mm -hmm. and lucky. Happily <laughs> ever after. <laughs> yes. And I mean... I don't, and I don't mean to say, right, like, we need hope, we need, we, we need the reality that families are complicated, and we also, what, what we find is that when folks aren't prepared for the realities mm -hmm. of the complexities of adoption, uh, they go into it blindly, they go into it unprepared, and then mm -hmm. they nav continue to navigate it without sight and without understanding of things, I should say, um, without a full understanding and and then a harm harm is accidentally done nobody intends to do the harm but a harm is done so mm -hmm. one really concrete place to start that comes up a lot in some of the spaces i am you you um mentioned first mother talk a little mm -hmm. bit about the languaging around sure thinking about first mothers and why that phrasing resonates mm -hmm. yeah so um you know i do use um, the term, you know, birth parent, as well as first parent, I use them interchangeably. Um, and, you know, first parent really came into use, I'd say maybe seven or eight years ago at this point for me, 
um, and thinking about, you know, often <laughs> when people are talking about um, people who've placed a child for adoption or had a child removed, it often is, you know, kind of putting us in this role, you know, as, you know, biological birth, you know, vehicles, vessel, vessels um, that um, is, is really limiting in terms of the actual role or impact that, um, you know, we have in our children's lives. And um, for me, it just speaks to the ways that, you know, parenting happens um, before a child was placed for adoption. Um, you know, we are literally, I'm saying we as, you know, first parent, first mother, um, you know, we are literally that adopted person's first family that they have. Um, and I just want people to think about, um, you know, the role that first family has, not just as, you know, medical info, DNA, blood, which of course these things are important too, but also literally, um, you know, the, the emotional, spiritual, um, you know, lineage things that, that aren't captured by the term like birth or bio. Um, and so I think, um, someone said to me once like, oh, well, doesn't, you know, does that mean the adoptive family's second? I mean, sure, technically, <laughs> yes, but there was this like kind of like prickliness about like, oh, does that mean like their second best or second choice? And like, no, it's just saying like literally when someone's adopted, the first family they had are the people that gave birth to them and their ancestors um, and, you know, adoptive parents, um, you know, getting comfortable with that. That's not to say that I'm, you know, saying they're second rate or second best, but just they are not the first family that an adopted person had. Yeah, and I think it's right off the bat we're talking about adoptive parent comfort, right? Mm, which, mm-hmm. which to me, and I, and I'm with I, I have, I am not sitting in any place of arrival around this. I, mm-hmm. you know, it cycles through for me to keep learning over and over again. There's, we end up centering adoptive parent comfort because you know, adoptive parents have needs. I'm, you know, I'm adoptive parent. There are there are distinct things about being an adoptive parent, but we also end up talking a lot about adoptive parent um, uh, comfort because of power differences in the relationships in the triad. So Mm -hmm. one of the things I wanted to do is talk a little bit today about how those power differences and the myths about first birth parents um, Mm -hmm. impact the, the network, the kinship network and the triad and ultimately an adoptee, an adoptive family I don't know what you'd rather speak to about the power difference and what it means to you to hear that language. Like, what do you, how do you talk about that power difference or whether you'd like to start talking about some of the myths that, that mm. you've experienced, which of those feels. Let's start with the power different differentials, power differences, power dynamics. Um, yeah, let's start there. I mean, it's, um, they are always present for first parents, for first families, so I'm, I'm in contact, I'm in community with a lot of first parents, mostly people who identify as first mothers, birth mothers, and even those relationships that, you know, have, have been open adoptions from the very beginning, um, you know, first mothers who feel like they really get along with their child's adoptive family, you know, there's a lot of transparency, a lot of, you know, open conversation, even in those relationships, you know, behind closed doors, what birth mothers say is like, 
you know, I, I don't feel like I can bring up this issue. I'm worried that if I get this wrong, you know, um, something terrible is going to happen. You know, I'm going to be cut off. Um, you know, even when adoptive parents have been very reassuring about like, you know, you're a part of our lives, you know, um, there's just always that fear. And, you know, I'm saying always, there might be a few birth parents out there who feel really solid, but I'd say for the most part, even in really solid relationships, there's always that fear because the reality is, um, you know, adoptive parents have all legal rights and first parents have none. We, our rights have been terminated, whether voluntarily or involuntarily. Um, you know, we are legal strangers to our children. Um, we have no rights and that you can't ignore that. You can't get around that. Um, and, you know, so there's, there's, there's that piece. And then there's the piece that, you know, the adoptive parents do have the day in day out influence. Um, I was talking with a a birth mother a few months ago about, you know, oftentimes the adoptees story of adoption, it's often shaped by the adoptive parents, even when there is contact with the first family that, you know, the person who has the most influence on that adopted person is the adoptive parent. They're the ones kind of like, you know, those day-to-day interactions, you know, um, the big ones, but also the small ones in terms of like how that adoptee thinks about adoption, thinks about their adoption story. Um, and so, um, you know, there's often class, race, education, age, difference, privileges, et cetera. Um, you know, adoption is typically, um, you know, white, wealthier, more people with, you know, greater access to education, adopting children from first families who are often, you know, younger people of color, maybe less established financially, professionally, et cetera. And so those power imbalances are are also often there. I'll just pause there and say, you know, it's, um, it's, it's, it's just a reality that, you know, even for adoptive families that really want to get it right and really try that you can't ignore the fact that, you know, as the only ones with legal rights, that that is a huge power imbalance. Yeah, and I think what what strikes me when I when I think about navigating some of these relationships too is the is the is the fear, right? So oftentimes I and I've been there. I I don't again mean to say that this is a, an experience foreign to me. Um, where like as an adoptive parent, we sort of fear that there is some biological driving connection, or or there is the thing that 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 will mean we are replaced that will mean Mm -hmm. our child will either be you know unsafe or or decide to not love us I mean like there's a Mm -hmm. guttural Mm -hmm. level piece there Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and 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 that's showing up on a lot of adoptive parents side right is like this Mm -hmm. nebulous awkward to name ugly to name fear that like something could undermine the connection mm-hmm. to this this being that that you love in indescribable ways, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have birth first parents with a, with a legally backed fear, you know. I mean, all of those pieces, and 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 so fear meets in the middle around how to try to maintain relationships and mm-hmm. and center an adoptee when everybody is 
everybody is in a place of fear, but one of those two parties having much more power and fear mm-hmm. <laughs> than, mm-hmm. than, 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 you know, birth first families who worry about, right, are, are behind closed doors often aware of that dynamic. Mm-hmm. And what, one of the things I hear, and this gets into the myths a little bit from, from adoptive parents is inconsistency. You know, mm-hmm. I tried to connect with the birth first mm-hmm. parent we had a few visit and now there it's just inconsistent. It's mm-hmm. part of my kit. And there's almost a, again, I think it sort of like reassures adoptive parents. They've done the right thing. So they can kind of cross that mm-hmm. off for Check a while, the mm-hmm. but it's too hard. And then there's so a lot of times an automatic judgment, right. About mm-hmm. like, about that first parent is, you know, flaky or not able to commit or, well, this is the kind of behavior that probably had them involved in the system in the first, like some of mm-hmm. these thoughts mm-hmm. that come up. So right. talk a little bit about what, what the fears or grief or like, what are the emotional experiences of some, because there isn't one singular story, mm-hmm. uh, but what are, what do you see from the emotional experiences of birth first parents and how does that show up? in in relationships and communication would you say i think i can talk about this in a couple of ways um you know obviously i can i can't speak for anyone's you know child's you know first parent so you know i can speak for myself i can speak generally about what i've heard and what i've you know seen for other um birth parents and you know just what i know from my professional work it's it's sometimes hard because it's like i you know i have <laughs> you know, sometimes I'll talk with adoptive parents who are like, you know, they want to know how to, you know, think about or approach their child's birth parent. And I'm like, I, I don't know them. I don't, you know, I don't know exactly what's, you know, what's going on. But what I can say is for many, many birth parents, the experience of, you know, having our parental rights terminated is a traumatic one, even if it was voluntary. Um, I think there's just a lot of trauma inherent in, um, in adoption, you know, whether, um, you know, unplanned pregnancy, um, you know, the circumstances of how someone became pregnant for some people, if it was, you know, a sexual assault, you know, for me, I was 20, I was getting a lot of flack from my adoptive parents about being pregnant and not married and, um, you know, it was like a very painful sort of isolating experience for me with them. There's just a lot of grief, regret, shame, guilt. You know, these are some of like the common, you know, across the board emotions that I think, you know, first parents feel about their stories. Um, and um, so when someone's dealing with, you know, regret, shame, guilt, trauma, <laughs> grief, Um, everyone has their own strategies for dealing with those really complex emotions. And some of us, some of us birth parents are able to go toward them and work through them in a way that it doesn't limit, it doesn't completely limit our ability to be available for relationship with our children. I'll say for me, like having had access to therapy, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, having had access to peer support groups since I was um, maybe, you know, for the last, I don't know, 10 or 12 years, these things have been instrumental for me in getting to a place where, um, you know, I, I, uh, 
feel good about how I can show up in my relationship with the child that I placed for adoption. Um, not everyone has that access, that privilege of, you know, um, health insurance, access to therapy, someone who um, can really, you know, get their experience and help them work through it. And so, um, you know, and yes, there might be circumstances um, that led to the adoption that are still present in someone's life that might make it harder for them to have relationships. But um, I would say for adoptive parents to, you know, try to come from a place of empathy about how hard it is for first parents to move toward this thing that has caused a lot of pain and, and suffering. Um, you know, for me, even with all the support I've had, even with doing this work myself, you know, I can tell you that, um, you know, when, um, so I, I recently reunited in person with my daughter. It's been an amazing thing. And for, but for the last prior 20 years, I had not had face-to-face -face contact with her, but twice a year I would write her a letter and send her either a birthday or a Christmas present or send them both. And each year, like I would have this, like, you know, avoidance, like, you know, I want to do it. I, but I don't know like what even she likes. I don't know who she is. I don't know what she listens to. I don't know what her hobbies are. And it was this very painful thing for me to figure out like, what do I get her? What do I say? And, you know, that was like very minimal contact. That was me just putting myself out there. Um, and each year it was like, I could watch myself really struggle with like showing up. And, you know, sometimes I would send the present late and I'd feel bad about it. Cause it's like, Oh, her birthday was last week but I could literally see myself avoid and delay because it was so painful. <laughs> yeah. and, and I really, I, yeah, I appreciate your openness about that. And, and I think in, in terms of the, the myths that I hear from, from folks, it, it is that like we sort of suspend birth first parents in this place in their life where even when we're well-intended, I think there's a patronizing uh -huh. because of the myths that this is, you know, right. I mean, I'll just the myth right there. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. There's recklessness involved in unplanned pregnancies. There's, mm -hmm. um, you know, your questionable morality, depending on what your vantage point is, even if you're being kind, there's still a like, Oh, they didn't have research. I mean, there, there, there's, we lump in this, this hardship and this disorganization kind of mm -hmm. thing somehow. And, mm -hmm. then, and then kind of freeze people there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just had an experience with that, that, uh, you know, so in, in recently reuniting in person with my, with my daughter, she shared with me that, uh, you know, so I've, I, I had her 20 years ago, and then I've since had two children. Um, one is three, one is about six months old right now. And my daughter told me that, you know, when she told her adoptive dad that, you know, she had these half siblings, um, but he was really like shocked that I had had more children because his memory of me, well, this is my interpretation. His memory of me was 20 year old Susan, you know, did not feel like I was able to parent, you know, even that is questionable. Like, why did I feel that way? But, you know, my reality at that time was I didn't feel able. I didn't feel like I had what I 
would have wanted to, you know, be able to provide for my child. But his memory of me was like, I, I, he, I don't know if this is something I said, or, you know, he's remembering it differently, but that I had his, his impression was that I had said like, that I would never want to have children, or I just didn't want to ever be a parent. And it's like, even if I had said that, that was 20 years ago. (laughs) And this idea that like, who do you know that is exactly the same person that they were 20 years ago? Who do you know that doesn't change and evolve in who they are? And there's definitely a way that like, I feel like birth parents can sort of get frozen in this moment in time, often for us, like one of the hardest times of our lives that like, that's how we're forever seen. Yeah. It's, it's, that was, I know of this. And then to hear my daughter say like, Oh, like my dad couldn't believe that you had four children. It's like, wow. Like that was such a perfect example of like, you really, he really just saw me still at this, you know, very specific moment in time. And, and I think it also comes up that, that adoptive parents are, are, you know, again, with grace to us in many ways, sometimes make up stories or tell a version of a story that they think is protective for their kid, right? Oh, it wasn't about you as an infant. There was nothing wrong with you as an infant. It was that your parent was not going to be a parent. I didn't want to be a parent. Didn't want. And so like the, the intention is protective for the adoptee and also for the, for the, for the adoptive parent, because then it's, then it's a, it's a rejection without being a personal rejection. Right. And so it's this really, in, insidious thing. And the, the, the other dynamic too is that, I mean, as you, as you mentioned, there, there are some first birth parents who continue to experience, you know, incredible systemic racism, mental health issues of their own, mm-hmm. um, you know, mm-hmm. repeated uh, life challenges. But A, there are complex reasons for those that are not related to character. And B, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. isn't every birth first family story. Right. Right. And that isn't the whole of that birth parent, you know, there, there are also other parts of them. Um, and yeah, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, there's, I feel like sometimes adoptive parents can get overly focused on, um, you know, the things that they perceive as the, the flaws or, you know, the, um, personal behaviors, personal responsibility, personal choices that a birth parent's making and um, not see the bigger picture or not see, you know, them as a whole. Yeah, not and not even be able to imagine how, and I think that's where some of the privilege and power stuff comes in when we talked about when adoptive parents, not always, but often have had really different lived experiences of systems mm-hmm. and schools and the whole a yeah. multi-layered piece of it then our lens for judgment and evaluation if we're not really mindful about that ends up um you know reassuring us things are better reassure, you know here reassuring us that that if i think the other thing i hear too is the the, the sense that when placement is made that then first birth parents just move on. They just moved on, mm-hmm. right? I mean, one of the myths is that that it's just not something they think about or they're not reaching out or not responding because they've got a new family. Because I mean, all kinds of mm-hmm. different things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that refers back a little bit to what we were saying about how folks cope with shame and guilt. And mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that birth parents are doing the best they can to cope with the aftermath. 
um, of having a child placed or having a child removed. And it's, it is definitely a myth that, you know, you just move on. Um, and it's a lifelong impact. It has lifelong impact and implications, you know, for first parents, for adoptees, obviously for everyone. Um, and how people deal with that lifelong impact is, can look really different. Um, and, you know, some people have the ability to move toward it and to try to deal with it. Other people, the way they're dealing with it is by avoiding and by distancing and, um, you know, um, trying to pretend that it's not there. And, and that's, that's the best they can do. Again, as someone, I have had the benefit of therapy, of peer support groups, of having like, you know, understanding and insight into these things. You know, I will say that, you know, there are times where I just need to live my life. My life is, you know, <laughs> it's very full right now. It's busy. It's hard. Like, you know, and, and I, again, have a lot of, I'm, I'm housed. I have a supportive partner. I have, you know, access to healthcare, all these things that like make a life easier. But um, at the same time, like sometimes I'm just needing to get through my day and, you know, to take time to deal with, um, you know, relationships, feelings, you know, these complicated, you know, dynamics. It, it is an intentional, okay, I have to set aside time to deal with this. Um, even if it's a good thing, even if it's a, you know, like I, I love, you know, corresponding with my daughter. I love talking with her. I love, you know, we've seen each other twice now and it's just, you know, that's like, that's a certain type of time energy, you know, um, that it's like, okay, I have to really make space for that in my life. Um, and so, yeah, if people are, are living complicated lives, it's, it's even more complicated to do that. I think, yeah, and I, I appreciate that. And I, and I'm also, I think it's, it's listening to stories, it's listening to voices, it's moving out of circles of adoptive parents and listening to adoptees and listening to first birth parents. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say, and I, and I, you know, this is a, something else that comes up too, that, that when adoptive parents get into their defensive place, and, and I know there's no one single answer but, answer, but when they're scared and when they're feeling defensive and they say, but I don't think it's safe. Like my mm-hmm. child's behavior deteriorate. Like, I just don't think this is a safe thing for my kid you know I don't I don't think it's good for them and I don't think it's safe the contact mm-hmm. uh, you know a therapist told me it's not good mm-hmm. <laughs> kind mm-hmm. of a thing and I, and I know you're not giving anybody direct clinical advice as we talk about it but what do you from your vantage point how do you invite adoptive parents to make those decisions and think about that issue yeah I think the the idea of safety is like such a you know um I don't know like an easy cop out, (laughs) um, that, um, you know, it's, it's possible. So my take is it is possible to have safe contact in all sorts of situations with first family members. Um, you know, that I've seen personally, um, you know, adoptive families develop really sweet relationships with, you know, first parents who, whose lives might be more complicated. It's, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of, 
Um, there's a lot of ways that contact can happen, even when there's, let's say, like substance use or homelessness or criminal whatever activity. There's still so many ways that that adoptee can still be connected to their first family, either, you know, the person engaging in those things themselves or you know, no first parent exists in a complete vacuum. Sometimes there might be situations where a birth parent isn't available, isn't ready, but their sister is, or their, you know, dad is, or their other children are. And so to think about like, you know, not just parents, but family um, that could be available for the adoptee and, you know, the piece about like, okay, my, you know, my kid struggles after visits, um, you know, it's, I think a parent's job, and I, I say this as someone who's, you know, <laughs> you know, finding my way parenting, you know, my, well, in in a way, parenting, birth parenting my 20-year-old and now day-to-day parenting my three-year-old and baby. It's like teaching emotional resilience, teaching your child how to tolerate and, and build a sense of resiliency and ability to work with challenging feelings and situations that you know, it's not about protecting them from the hard stuff. It's about, let's look at this hard stuff together. Let me walk next to you as you're going into these hard moments. You know, unless the child is saying, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, I don't believe that, um, you know, that a, a child having a difficult response after a visit, that in and of in and of itself is not a reason to stop contact. And, and I think sometimes um, adoptive parents look for that, like, though, see, it isn't good, it isn't good for them or me, it's anxiety-provoking for everybody. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and right, I mean, in reality, part of the, as I understand it, the adoptee work is the integration of these pieces. And if you're, if you're not, you know, afforded the opportunity to cope with the hard part, I mean, I think that's the other mm-hmm, thing, is that it just based mm-hmm. on this message that, there are healthy, thriving adoptees, yes. And our larger cultural talk about this is still that it's too easy, it's lucky, it's grateful, everybody wins. We, I don't mean to shout from the mountaintops only the negative hard parts, but I introduce them into the conversation because the, the, the common trope neglects all the hard parts. And recently, I know we chatted ever so briefly about it. If there's a lot in the news right now mm-hmm. in terms of a grossly oversimplified conversation mm-hmm. that ties mm-hmm. right into sort of myths, right? About what's happening yeah. with the Supreme Court and justices talking about um, adoption plans as a, a solution for unplanned pregnancy. Like not, not mm-hmm. to have no hesitance about having the government make decisions about reproduction in people's bodies because, mm-hmm. you know, there's always adoption as an, as, yeah. as a, as a, as a wonderful alternative to mm-hmm. making your own reproductive health decisions. Mm-hmm. But what are your thoughts when you hear that play out on the national level, when your adoption and abortion are held side by side? Yeah, I mean, they, they are not equivalent choices. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, I <clears throat> the way that I respond when this moment, this particular moment in time, in case people are listening to this podcast, you know, weeks or months from now is, you know, Supreme Court is hearing um, arguments about laws in Mississippi to, um, you know, ban abortion after 15 weeks. And so, and Amy Coney Barrett, an adoptive mother of two, I believe, you know, as a Supreme Court justice is saying, 
you know, well, you know, it, it, could it, couldn't it be an option? Like, so what if they have to be pregnant for another 20 weeks and they wanted to, when at the end of those 20 weeks, they can just, you know, safe surrender if they need to or place their baby for adoption. And it's, it's the word just that like, I really like to focus on, like, you know, just for someone to be pregnant, you know, for an additional three or four months, just for someone to, you know, <laughs> you know, go through childbirth or C-section, you know, which for a lot of people, you know, can come with significant health risks and then just terminate their parental rights and live with the aftermath of adoption for the rest of their lives that, you know, this is presented as like, um, I don't know, almost kind of like a easy breezy thing that people can just do. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, just from the birth parent perspective, like not to, you know, mention the adoptee perspective of, um, yeah, and then, and then it's fine. Then you just live with these things afterwards. And um, it's just such a false, um, you know, it's, it's not an abortion and adoption are not, you know, realistic alternatives. One requires remaining pregnant and, you know, bringing into existence another person that you will then have a relationship with. And whether that's something you're, you know, in touch with, you know, in contact with or not, like there is, there's another person whose life is going to be affected by this. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's extremely frustrating, um, when it's presented as, you know, don't have an abortion when you can just place your baby for adoption and no one's unpacking like all that really goes into that. Yeah, it's, again, I just think there's so much misinformation floating around about how easy this solution is, how beneficial it is mm-hmm. for everyone. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and it misses, misses, key key pieces if if you have um for clinicians who maybe are listening to this because they do work with adoptive families um and what i know you this is a whole other days and days of talking any tips or things that you could do offer to other clinicians if their if their work involves adoptive constellations and the triad and and anything you'd like them to hold about birth first parent experience um inclusion etc this whole these things we've been talking about today yeah i mean i think um unpacking your own stuff about what are your assumptions biases experiences um you know um when it comes to adoption, especially, you know, since we're talking about birth parents and yeah, like what, what you said, Laura, about, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, well, my therapist said, you know, this is too hard for my kids. So I should stop (laughs) visits. Like, don't be that therapist, (laughs) you know, um, don't be that therapist that, you know, gives a pass to adoptive parents, be the therapist that asks them to be brave And, um, and that may require some work of your own around, like, if you are someone that, you know, um, has given that advice or could imagine saying that, like, what's that about? Where's that coming from? Um, And, um, you know, helping adoptive parents think about, um, you know, their, their child's 
birth parents are who they are and whether it's now or five years from now or 15 years from now, that adoptee is likely going to have, you know, if there's been contact, if there's, you know, been some type of, you know, exchange of information or relationship, that adoptee is likely to, um, you know, seek out or have some type of connection with their birth family. And, um, you know, helping the adoptive parents think about, um, you know, how to best support their child in developing the relational emotional, um, intelligence skills to figure out how do they want to navigate a relationship, you know, with their birth family and, you know, not making it just about birth parents, but about like parents should be teaching their children, like all sorts of tools, skills about how do they navigate relationships in general. Um, and yes, this is a very important one, but to not, um, I don't know, to not make it so much about like, um, you know, uh, a, a specific, um, to, to make it more general. Like, so if the birth parents dealing with mental health issues, lots of people deal with mental health issues, help adoptive parents figure out how do they talk with their child about people who have mental health issues and um, locating the birth family as, you know, one one part of that, but that um, that it's it's, uh, it's not so limited to them. It's, this is like a global thing that all people can benefit from, um, greater understanding and skills and awareness of how to, um, have relationships when someone might be dealing with mental health challenges. Yeah. I would just say like, if you're a therapist to question yourself, your own assumptions, your own beliefs, and, really ask adoptive parents to be brave and remind them that their child having difficult feelings does not mean that something shouldn't happen. <laughs> you know, this morning my kid was crying because he didn't want to go to school or, you know, daycare. Do I let him not go to daycare? No, because this is what needs to happen. This is important. This is, you know, him having a moment of upset does not mean that that dictates what happens um, in his life. And, you know, there's other ways to, you know, support a kid in, in coping with their difficult feelings. I think, too, there's really... Um there, there are ways where contact comes in all different kinds of forms and shapes and ways and, and, and therapists too often I hear therapists say they, they work with adoptive families, but they're, I, as a therapist who was a therapist for many years before I was an adoptive parent, um, get training, find some training, find some places to go, check mm -hmm. your biases, get some training and also realize too, I think for adoptive parents or therapists or other people listening in the modern age of technology and DNA testing and I mean like so much and, and just more you know I would say evolved thinking like the reality of openness navigation finding somebody finding mm -hmm. you somebody finding mm -hmm. cousins, somebody find, right is like at some do you as an adoptive parent would you like to be part of building skills and connection and honoring these connections that are inevitably going to be part of your extended family for your whole life because it's funny the same way we seem to pause first birth parents we also pause adoptees at like seven or eight you know like we it, they're mm -hmm. you know and sort of think about what it means to have first family connections when your child is eight well what mm -hmm. might it mean to you to have first you know birth first family connections when your child is 48 and mm -hmm. what, what you know what is you're setting this 
stage for how mm-hmm. those things are going to be approached, right. right? So much, right. So much more of the adoptee's life is going to be lived as an adult having, you know, adult relationships with their birth family and, and you know, only a small portion of their life is you as gatekeeper sort of, you know, managing that. And, um, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's a very, you know, smaller proportion. (laughs) Um, and so, and like you said, you know, even if an adoptee isn't going, you know, toward reunion, seeking that out, I, you know, just recently, you know, as an adoptee, um, you know, I, it's like, it's funny. It's like, you know, my story never ends, right? Like there's, there's always more (laughs) because life is always evolving. And even when I think I know everything or, you know, met everyone or whatever, like there's always something new. And, you know, a couple, uh, a couple months ago, you know, someone reached out to me on ancestry.com saying like, you're a relative. Um, (laughs) Oh, no, this was actually a couple of years ago. I've had two people contact me through DNA testing mm-hmm. um, that, you know, if I wasn't in a place to have relate, like it was it was there whether or not I was seeking it out. Right. And so, you know, a few years ago, it was someone saying, hey, it looks like we're connected. How are you connected to this family? I've never met you. And it was like, oh, I was adopted. That's why you've never met. And then it was like, well, who is your, like, well, who had you, you know? And so it was like basically my birth mother's, you know, maybe cousin or second cousin who was trying to put together the pieces of like, whose kid was I? And, you know, it was like, I didn't seek that out, but here it is in my face. And, you know, if you're parenting an adoptee, thinking about like, how would you, what skills would you want them to have to figure out how to navigate that? And, you know, and are you the kind of parent that they could then call you and say, oh my gosh, someone just reached out. This was hard or this was weird or this was great. And like, you want to be the parent that they call to work through this stuff if they're having hard feelings about it. That's a really beautiful place to kind of start thinking about wrapping up in terms of like, yeah do you want a child who comes to you do you want a child who's resilient do you want a child who's integrating all the beautiful parts of and hard parts Mm -hmm. beautiful and hard parts of their stories Mm -hmm. you know and can you be part of that one one final thing that i would love if you're willing where if if first birth parents are listening um Mm -hmm. and and they are there supports can you like how can they find more of you and your work what would you how, how mm-hmm. do we continue to, to, to build kinship connections and support folks in every role in the triad? Any resources? Yeah. Um, yeah. If you're listening, hello. Good to, good to have you here. Um, and yeah, there's a, um, a couple ways. I mean, one is I do run a monthly support group, peer support group for any first family member. So it has been mostly um, actually only parents so far, but if you're you know, a first grandma or, you know, sibling of, of a birth parent, you're also welcome to come. Um, so you could find that through pactadopt.org. Um, we have uh, monthly support groups. Um, we also have a Facebook group where, you know, there's sometimes, you know, articles, conversations, ideas that happen. Um, and, um, uh, people are also welcome to email me. So Susan, S-U-S-A-N, at pactadopt.org. 
www.thinkdeep.org. Um, feel free to email me anytime. And, um, you know, there's other um, support groups out there. Um, there's an organization called M Power Alliance, M P O W E R Alliance, that serves um, birth mothers who have some type of connection to California. Either their child lives in California or they place there. Um, and Concern United Birth Parents is another um, uh, venue. They do retreats yearly, I believe. Um, so yeah, those are a couple options to get folks started. Great. Well, once again, I am really um, honored to have your time and thoughtfulness around this. And, and my hope again is to just really invite any any listener, any ally, any member of the adoptive triad to um, you know sit sit with the hard stuff and show up and walk toward these things for for everyone's health and for for all the beautiful complex hard parts of this journey. So thank you, Susan, for being here today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, and you're welcome. Right. Well, thanks for listening today. Just a quick note here at the end to say I am so glad you joined, and I hope you are too. And if you'd like to connect with me more, come take a look at my website, www.drlauraanderson.com. There you can join my newsletter, keep in touch, and find out what is in the works. You can also join me for coffee and conversation uh, on Facebook at Common Cord Psychology Services. So check me out those places and I look forward to further connection. I'm glad you were here today.